Chapter 21, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Through Egypt, Homewards, Part 2. Thursday, March 5th. At six in the morning, we started on our expedition to the pyramids. Passing the enormous square of Kezer Ernil barracks and crossing the lion-guarded bridge of the same name, we soon distanced the town. Coming in from the surrounding country, all along the roads, we met trains of camels and troops of donkeys laden with the day's forage for Cairo. The green grass looked rich and succulent, swaying in mountainous stacks on either side of the camel, and balancing across the donkeys in loads that hid all except their four legs walking underneath. Sandy and barren, as is the desert of Egypt, where irrigation is brought into use, the crops are extraordinarily rich and luxuriant. Added to which, they cut with impunity crop after crop of clover and green food without dreaming of allowing the ground to lie fallow during any part of the year thus it is that around cairo though really only the desert it looks a green and cultivated plain the canals are cracked and dry but will fill with the rising of the nile which irrigating the land and overflowing with its muddy waters leaves that rich alluvial deposit of fertility. The last four miles approach to the pyramids is over a road shaded by an avenue of tamarinds, so straight that you can see a man, a speck, at the end. We read, we imbibe unconsciously, we listen eagerly to the account of impressions of some world wonder, some object of exceptional beauty or interest. We cannot help longing to see that object. We cannot help feeling some excitement when we are nearing that wonder, which we have been picturing to ourselves for so long, when we are nearing the realization of an oft-expressed wish since childhood. Thus it is, and thus it is that we often realize some disenchantment, I had often done so, but nothing will ever come up to the keen intensity of my disappointment or the bitter revulsion of feeling as we approached the pyramids and obtained a good view of them. They may grow grander as we come nearer, I said, but no, I think they really diminished rather than increased on a nearer approach. The pyramids stand on a natural platform of rock. The three are in a line. The second, or pyramid of Chephren, touches the angle of the first, or that of Cheops, and that of the third, the pyramid of Mycerinus, that of Chephren. Thus, as you draw near, it becomes a line of perspective, in which each pyramid recedes and recedes behind the greater one, till only Cheops is left in solitary glory. But even thus he does not seem stupendous, he does not seem to crush you with his size to be ungraspable from height to be immeasurable for width he does not impress you with the feeling of your own insignificance he is very large that is all
even when we had driven up the last steep ascent and stood under his very shadow, I felt scarcely more impressed. There was a peculiar effect of following with the eye some way up, and then suddenly feeling that the pyramid was receding from your sight when you saw that you were looking at its comb. You must gaze upon the pyramids, bearing in your mind's eye all the time the grand idea that called them into existence, the despotic monarch who thought to build for himself an everlasting monument, who thought, by the stupendousness of the work, to preserve his body when all others should have perished, to perpetuate the memory of his reign to worlds of generation. The vanity of all human aims and desires the tomb was opened sacked for the treasures of gold and silver that so great a builder would surely have interred with his remains and the bones of cheops where are they now consigned to the sand of the desert to the dust whence he came it is wonderful to think that this outer pyramid is only the covering for a number of smaller ones inside how many is only conjectured by the size of the outer one when the building of a pyramid was commenced a piece of rock it is said was taken as the centre to form the support of the apex of the first tiny pyramid and then a space was hollowed out in the rock wherein the sarcophagus would rest some day the pyramid grew with the length of the reign of the royal builder year by year its growth increased and at his death it was finished off at the point it had then reached Various theories have been advanced as to the use of the pyramids. Some have thought they were for astronomical purposes. One, that it was simply a meteorological monument, large enough to serve for all kinds of measurements. But Egyptologists are now agreed in thinking they are tombs hermetically sealed everywhere, the forever impenetrable casing of a mummy. There are many who would share in Lord Lindsay's beautiful but mystic idea their origin, but I for one do not. Temples or tombs, monuments of tyranny or of priestly wisdom, no theory as to the meaning of the pyramids, those glorious works of fine intelligence, has been broached so beautifully to my mind as old Sandys, who, like Milton and the ancients, believed them modeled in imitation of that formless, form-taking substance, fire, conceives them to express the original things. For as the pyramid, beginning at the point, little by little dilateth into all parts, so nature, proceeding from an individual fountain, even God, the sovereign essence, receiveth diversity of form, effused into several kinds and multitudes of figures, uniting all in the supreme head from which all excellences issue. We are soon surrounded, and the prey of the body of Bedouins who squat in a group at the corner of the Great Pyramid, but at the bidding of the all-powerful Sheikh, six men are singled out for the ascent. The steps if such they can be called, are blocks from two to four feet high and come nearly up to the waist of such a small person as myself.
therefore you stand and look doubtful as to how to ascend to the first one but there is no time for much thought before the gods have seized you with a grasp that leaves its mark and by main force you are lifted and dragged up while at some of those still higher the guide behind gives a heaving help and push the exercise is violent. The sockets of your arms feel elongated. The muscles of the legs, particularly at the back, are aching. You feel that the disposal of your petticoats is getting higher than you like, but there is no time to stay. You scramble on somehow, hardly knowing how you are going to reach the next step before you are there. The Bedouins take you up at a tremendous pace and hardly give you time to breathe an occasional halt, but it is a good plan in that you have no time to hesitate whether you will turn back, daunted. It is very dizzying work looking down on such layers and layers, such rows upon rows of yellow steps below added to which the sudden change of temperature five hundred feet higher makes respiration more difficult when you arrive at the summit on the platform you are too breathless and exhausted to enjoy the view much the fertile valley of the nile is on one side but on the other there is the huge vast arid desert the great sahara it is that which determined me to ascend the pyramids i wanted to gain the idea of what a desert can be when that and that alone is seen it is very terrible the bedouins clamoured around me including the sacha or water carrier who always accompanies the ascent for bakshish and the sale of coins and as c having been up before had stopped half-way i was alone at the top and was fain to descend to be rid of them the descent is far worse than the ascent the jar to the system of jumping from step to step is very trying and it is really best to sit down on the step and slide over however inelegant the entrance to the pyramid is a little way up in the centre of one side the steps here are sunk in sideways so as to form a slanting platform to a small aperture over this, there are two enormous blocks of marble laid pentwise to form an arch in the pyramid and to support its weight on the roof of the passage. You slip and slide down the steep passage, feeling you are going down into the bowels of the earth, the entrails of the great pyramid, and a last long slide brings you into the chamber. Here you see the material of which the pyramids are constructed a rock called numelite limestone, often containing fossil remains. In one place it is rough and glistening, in another smooth and polished, as if worn away, by what means is not known. In the roof there is a recess where the sarcophagus is supposed to have stood, but none was found when it was opened for the first time, as was supposed in reality the tomb had been opened and sacked probably not such an untold number of years after the death of cheops then we walked ankle-deep in sand a quarter of a mile away to the southeast of the great pyramid to where the sphinx stands her whereabouts is only decided by a mass of rock that looks at first sight 
please excuse the familiar simile, like the toadstool rock at Tombridge Wells, for it is only a mass of rock supported on a column. As we approach, however, and finally stand under the Sphinx, we begin to understand the fascinations she exercises. We see the Egyptian helmet with the long flaps under which are the protruding ears so very distinct. Then we notice the eyes, the forehead, the broken flattened nose, and the thick lips. It is in the lips lies the expression of the Sphinx, the disdainful, haughty look, or anon the smile that parts them. The remainder of the face follows the mood expressed on the lips, but at all times the Sphinx is unsympathetic, cold as the stone she is carved in. With face turned towards the rising waters of the Nile, she changes not with the ruddy glow of sunset, nor the blush of morning reflecting from its waters. She is human, but relentless. The animal body of the Sphinx is again buried in the sand, for once, a century ago, excavation revealed it. Between the front paws it was then found there was an altar where sacrifices must have been offered under the very head of the Sphinx herself, and a sanctuary with some tablets was discovered under the breast. Stanley said its situation and significance are worthy of the Sphinx. If it was the giant representative of royalty, then it fitly guards the greatest of royal sepulchres, and with its half-human and half-animal form is the best welcome and the best farewell to the history and religion of Egypt. Connected as it was supposed to be with her worship, the temple of the sphinx is peculiarly appropriate to her in its mastidity the enormous blocks of granite and alabaster laid lengthwise across other blocks on which we look down gives to it the appearance of the crypt of a cathedral the two remaining pyramids have no special interest nor yet the two or three others very small ones by comparison lying about the greater the latter are evidences of a very short reign, or perhaps were only intended to serve as a monument of sufficient height to ensure their never being sunk or overwhelmed with the sand typhoon of the desert. On Friday afternoon, the Sabbath of the Moslems, we went to see the religious service held by the sect of howling dervishes. Passing through a quiet court where the musicians were taking their places through an outer room, we came into a whitewashed mosque whose unornamented dome, as we shall presently see, has a splendid echo. A goatskin mat is arranged round in a circle on which the twenty or thirty worshippers enter one by one and kneel. The sheikh squats in the qibla or niche, and we sit on chairs ranged around the wall. The priest or sheikh intones some prayers to which all respond, the echo lingering and repeating the sonorous tones of the response, till it forms an accompaniment to the following prayer. Then they begin repeating the same word or phrase, Allah, 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 with a gentle inclination of the body. This action gradually increases with the rise of the voices, which, if they unconsciously flag for a minute, are vigorously taken up and maintained again. At a given sign from the sheik, they cease. All stand up. 
Then the same recommences with increased exercise and an occasional howl from some more devoted worshipper, while soft wild music is heard outside. Gradually you are fascinated by this circle of men, all bowing at the same moment, all intoning on one note, and now it is a groaning noise they make, and it grows and grows, till the raising of the sheik's hands stops it once more. Then they take off their clothes, their turbans, and undo their long hair, and the real work of worship commences. The sheikh touches a man on the shoulder and singles him out to stand in the center. The swaying recommences, but with the violence where they left off as the first stage, and the dervish in the center leads, swaying, bending, all in time. Music strikes up, the tom-tom of large tambourines, a deafening discordant pandemonium to which they are moving in time, urged on by the increase and swell of the music, faster, ever-increasing, louder the music, deafening its sound. A circle of wild, magnetic creatures tossing their locks of hair, unconscious, mechanical, holding a mesmerized look on the dervish, who with closed eyes performs with ecstasy the exercise of his salvation. Another steps into the circle and begins, with arms outstretched, slowly to turn and twirl round and round and round, never moving from the exact spot of ground where he first took his stand, gently at first, increasing slowly, becoming fast, faster, a whirl now. All is utter confusion. Chaos has come. The scene swims before your eyes. The wild, fanatical little body of surging, swaying dervishes is becoming indistinct when a sudden raising of the finger brings it all to a close in an instant. Only one last resounding thud of the tom-tom, one prolonged howl lingers on the echo. The spinning dervish sinks, exhausted to the ground. Saturday, March 7th. Lady Baring took me to the Visserines at home on Saturday afternoon at Aachen Palace. We entered by a private way and back staircase and were shown through a succession of reception rooms to a small drawing room or boudoir where Her Highness sat. She is still young and has pretty features. All say she is most pleasant and good-natured, but she has grown and is growing enormously stout. The Visserine was arrayed in a Parisian toilette of black, and save for the representative feature of a bunch of red roses and diamond ornaments, looked completely European. The slaves, too, were dressed in English materials of old gold, blue, and pink silks, with gilt waistbands and bunches of roses, and not as one had looked to see them in some graceful oriental costume. We all sat round in a circle for the prescribed time, and cigarettes were offered and coffee brought, that nasty, bitter Arabian coffee, in tiny cups with Turkish stands. The same afternoon we called on Camille Barriere at the French Agency, the most beautiful house in Cairo just purchased by the French government. There are some very unique ceilings and mosaic dedos in it and a great quantity of the pretty Mushrabea. We dined in the evening with Nubar Pasha, the Prime Minister, and Madame Nubar, 
and after dinner went to a Turkish peaks at the theatre. Quite half the galleries were curtained for the ladies of the harem, behind which we could see they were crowded, and when everyone left the house between the acts, it was from thence came the clouds of smoke that filled the theatre. Nubar Pasha is a very charming and courteous man. Sunday, March 8th. The premier very kindly lent us his Dahabia to go up the Nile. One always has a very mistaken idea about the beauty of the Nile. It is an exceedingly ugly river with shoals and sandbanks lying about in its course. Going up only a little way from Cairo, there is a fine view of the Mokatam Range. The citadel with the mosque of Muhammad Ali, whose slender minars tower as high again above the hills. Warehouses and manufactories, followed by mud villages, render the banks utterly hideous and uninteresting. The nuggers, with their sharp-angled sails and enormously tall, slanting masts, are alone pretty and picturesque. We return to Cairo as the sun was setting. Wednesday, March 11th. Got up early, packed, drove to the station, took our seats in the train for Suez to embark on board the P&O Tasmania for Malta, Gibraltar, and Spain. Three minutes before the train started, bag and baggage we bundled out again. I saw in the paper there were fresh earthquakes in Spain, particularly at Malaga, where we must have landed from Gibraltar. We spent the day in Cairo and left again in the evening by the mail to Alexandria to go via Brindisi to Cairns. We drove through the streets of Alexandria by gaslight, seeing the remains of the bombardment on all sides. What a national reproach are the ruins and the houses partially riddled with cannon shot, the neat piles of broken brick and stone by the road. They are only just beginning to build Alexandria after a lapse of two years. We got on board the P&O mail steamer Assam at 11 o'clock and weighed anchor early next morning. Thursday, sea flat, calm. Friday, the shores of Crete and Candia in view, the bold outline of her mountains covered with snow. Saturday, within sight of beautiful Zante, an island of the Ionian group. A very rough night on board, half a gale blowing, and the next morning we are at Brindisi. Dear little Brindisi, though few will agree in this term of endearment, desolate and dreary as she is, greeting us with a snowstorm as she did, looked homelike and sweet to us, if only because she is so near home, a distance of no account after what we have done. The trees about the harbor were budding and breaking into blossom, notwithstanding the gray northeaster blowing. All day we were traveling along the leg of Italy by the storm-swept ocean breaking in angry breakers along the shore, across the fertile plains of Tuscany, Bologna reached at one in the morning, left the next day to arrive at Genoa the same evening. Then a day spent in crawling along the beautiful Riviera, its orange groves, olive yards, and flowers smiling us a sunshiny greeting. Cairns reached at length that evening, hearty welcomes, home-like feelings, 
renewing acquaintance with our little daughter, Vera. A fortnight's pleasant rest after our long journey, a gathering up of the thread of events, domestic and otherwise, since we left England in July last, and London reached on the 1st of April. Home at last. We had been absent not quite nine months, had traveled more than 40,000 miles, visited America and Canada, Australia and New Zealand, Netherlands, India, the Malay Peninsula, India and Egypt, gained useful information without end, and laid up stores of knowledge that will never cease to be precious till our lives end had many and many a pleasant recollection left of little adventures, anecdotes, and incidents such as happen in common to all travelers, and made not a few interesting acquaintances. Let me finally take this opportunity of expressing to all the many kind friends, particularly those in the colonies, our gratitude for the hearty welcome and cheery hospitality extended to us by all. Should anyone wish for nine months, or better still, a year of perfect enjoyment, of rest and relief from the weary round of duty and so-called pleasure, which is the life and lot of so many of us, I say, go a tour, not round the world, not mere globe-trotting, but a complete tour of study through the glorious British Empire, such as we have tried to do, and failed only in that the Cape was, for circumstances already mentioned, impossible for us. In Greater Britain, all who are countrymen or women, all coming from the mother country, are sure of the same kindness and warm reception we experienced. All are sure of great enjoyment. All are sure of a wealth of bright, pleasant memories for the future. Such has been our experience. To all I would say, go and do thou likewise. Written under circumstances of some difficulty, chiefly on board ship, in cabins close and dark, tossed and swung about, this journal has been put together. Poor little journal as it is, the first production of an unskilled pen, I am but too fully conscious of its defects. It is up to date now. The last entry has been made, and with a sigh, it has been confided to the hands of the printer and publisher. May they and the public be merciful to it. End of chapter 21, part 2. End of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Bitson.